Welcome to Old Treasures Made New, your devotional podcast on the go or at home, where we read the scriptures and reflect on them with those from the past. Today we're reading Mark 11, verses 1 to 11, and then through J.C. Ryle's expository thoughts on Mark. Please take a moment to pause and to ask the Holy Spirit to bring understanding and to apply what we hear. Mark, chapter 11, verses 1 to 11. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David! Hosanna in the highest! And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. This is the word of the Lord. The event described in these verses is a singular exception in the history of our Lord's earthly ministry. Generally speaking, we see Jesus withdrawing himself from public notice, often passing his time in the remote parts of Galilee, not infrequently abiding in the wilderness, and so fulfilling the prophecy that he should not cry, nor strive, nor let his voice be heard in the streets. Here, and only here, our Lord appears to drop his private character, and of his own choice to call public attention to himself. He deliberately makes a public entry into Jerusalem at the head of his disciples. He voluntarily rides into the holy city, surrounded by a vast multitude crying Hosanna, like King David returning to his palace in triumph. 2 Samuel 19.40 All this too was done at a time when myriads of Jews were gathering out of every land to Jerusalem to keep the Passover. We may well believe that the holy city rang with the tidings of our Lord's arrival. It is probable that there was not a house in Jerusalem in which the entry of the prophet of Nazareth was not known and talked of that night. These things should always be remembered in reading this portion of our Lord's history. It is not for nothing that this entry into Jerusalem is four times related in the New Testament. It is evident that it is a scene in the earthly life of Jesus, which Christians are intended to study with special attention. Let us study it in that spirit and see what practical lessons we may learn from the passage for our own souls. Let us observe in the first place how public our Lord purposely made the last act of his life. He came to Jerusalem to die, and he desired that all Jerusalem should know it. When he taught the deep things of the Spirit, he often spoke to none but his apostles. When he delivered his parables, he often addressed none but a multitude of poor and ignorant Galileans. When he worked his miracles, he was generally at Capernaum or in the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. But when the time came that he should die, he made a public entry into Jerusalem He drew the attention of rulers and priests and elders and scribes and Greeks and Romans to himself. 
he knew that the most wonderful event that ever happened in this world was about to take place. The eternal Son of God was about to suffer in the stead of sinful men. The great sacrifice for sin about to be offered up. The great Passover lamb about to be slain. The great atonement for a world's sin about to be made. He therefore ordered it so that his death was imminently a public death. He overruled things in such a way that all eyes of all Jerusalem were fixed upon him. And when he died, he died before many witnesses. Let us see here one more proof of the unspeakable importance of the death of Christ. Let us treasure up his gracious sayings. Let us strive to walk in the steps of his holy life. Let us prize his intercession. Let us long for his second coming. But never let us forget the crowning fact in all we know of Jesus Christ is his death upon the cross. From that death flow all our hopes. Without that death, we would have nothing solid beneath our feet. May we prize that death more and more every year we live, and in all our thoughts about Christ, rejoice in nothing so much as the great fact that he died for us. Let us observe in the second place in this passage the voluntary poverty which our Lord underwent when he was upon earth. How did he enter Jerusalem when he came to it on this remarkable occasion? Did he come in a royal chariot with horses, soldiers, and an entourage around him like the kings of this world? We are told nothing of the kind. We read that he borrowed a colt of a donkey for the occasion and sat upon the garments of his disciples for lack of saddle. This was in perfect keeping with all the tenor of his ministry. He never had any of the riches of this world. When he crossed the Sea of Galilee, it was in a borrowed boat. When he rode into the holy city, it was on a borrowed beast. And when he was buried, it was in a borrowed tomb. We have in this simple fact an instance of that marvelous union of weakness and power, riches and poverty, the Godhead and the manhood, which may be so often traced in the history of our blessed Lord. Who that reads the Gospels carefully can fail to observe that he who could feed thousands with a few loaves was himself sometimes hungry, and he who could heal the sick and infirm was himself sometimes weary, that he who could cast out devils with a word was himself tempted, and he who could raise the dead could himself submit to die. We see the very same thing in the passage before us. We see the power of our Lord in his bending of wills of a vast multitude to conduct him into Jerusalem in triumph. We see the poverty of our Lord in his borrowing a donkey to carry him when he made his triumphal entry. It is all wonderful, but there is a fitness in it all. It is appropriate and right that we should never forget the union of the divine and human natures in our Lord's person. If we saw his divine acts only, we might forget that he was a man. If we saw his seasons of poverty and weakness only, we might forget that he was God. But we are intended to see in Jesus divine strength and human weakness united in one person. We cannot explain the mystery, but we may take comfort in the thought this is our Savior. This is our Christ, one able to sympathize because he is a man, but one almighty to save because he is God. Finally, let us see in the simple fact that our Lord rode on a borrowed donkey one more proof 
that poverty is in itself no sin. The causes which occasion much of the poverty there is around us are undoubtedly very sinful. Drunkenness, extravagance, licentiousness, dishonesty, idleness, which produce so much of the destitution in the world, are unquestionably wrong in the sight of God. But to be born a poor man, and to inherit nothing from our parents, to work with our own hands for our bread, and to have no land of our own, all this is not sinful at all. The honest poor man is as honorable in the sight of God as the richest king. The Lord Jesus Christ himself was poor. Silver and gold he had none. He had often nowhere to lay his head. Though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor. To be like him in circumstances cannot be in itself wrong. Let us do our duty in that state of life to which God has called us, and if he thinks fit to keep us poor, let us not be ashamed. The Savior of sinners cares for us as well as for others. The Savior of sinners knows what it is to be poor. That is the end of Ryle's expository thoughts for these verses. Let us carefully consider what we have heard today, and may the Lord be pleased to bring the growth for His glory. In considering what we have just heard, would you prayerfully ask yourself and others the following questions? First, is the crowning fact of all we know about Jesus, His death on the cross, on our behalf? Do all our hopes flow from this substitutionary act? Second, does the truth of Jesus' full divinity and humanity remind your heart that, apart from this truth, he could not sympathize with our weaknesses and or not save us? Does it bring you to worship our great God for this unique and only Savior? And lastly, Does it amaze us that our Savior, the very Son of God, was poor? Does this humble us as we think of the poor around us?